Today I want to start the story of Ruth with you. But which Ruth? You know, throughout history there's been some impressive Ruths. Well, we could tell the story of Babe Ruth, the, the great Bambino, the, the Sultan of Swat, one of the best baseball players to ever play the game. He boasts over 700 home runs in his career, had incredible uh, batting average and on-base percentage. Babe Ruth was he was a stud when it comes to baseball. And just a simple Google search will show you that there's a lot we could look at when we look at his story. Or, or we could tell the story of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, one of the Supreme Court justices. In fact, the second female uh, to be appointed to the Supreme Court ever. And she held that seat for 23 years. You may not agree with her politics, but you at least have to admire her. Even though she voted liberally, she often held close friendships with people she totally disagreed with who were on the conservative side. There's a lot to know about her. In fact, full documentaries have been presented about her. We could talk about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Or maybe you're like me and you often think in terms of food. And so you want to know the story behind Ruth Chris Steakhouse and how it got to be so popular and, and spread out all over cities all over the country. Or maybe you've got a sweet tooth and you just want to talk about Baby Ruth candy bars because maybe that's your favorite candy. All kinds of Ruths have existed throughout history. But the story of Ruth that I want to tell you is the story of Ruth from the Bible. You can find her story in the Old Testament. In fact, if you have a Bible or your phone, I would encourage you to go ahead and turn to the book of Ruth. And I find the book of Ruth, I find the story of Ruth to be more captivating, more engaging, more entertaining than any of those other stories of Ruth throughout history that we mentioned. Why? Because the story of Ruth is one that you and I can relate to. There's nothing impressive about her story. It's pretty simple, but you and I will immediately identify with the characters that we meet. It's not a story where we see God doing incredible miracles. We don't see him actually even talking to the characters in the story. But it's a story where we actually see God moving the entire times in the, in the everyday lives of everyday people. So this is a story that you and I can relate to. And so that's the story that I want to share with you today. We're going to look at the first part, and then in the next four weeks, we'll go to parts two, three, four, and five. And we're just going to sit with Ruth for a while and learn her story. We begin in Ruth chapter 1, starting in verse 1. It says, In the days when the judges ruled Israel, a severe famine came over the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi, and their two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephathrites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. You see, our story begins not with Ruth, but with Elimelech. And Elimelech was living in what the author calls the time of the judges. And unless you're really familiar with your Old Testament history, you may not know what that means. So let me give you a quick recap. After Israel uh, came into the land that God had given them, the promised land, they were trying to figure out how to be a nation, how to live with each other and how to live with surrounding nations. And more often than not, the people of Israel got it wrong. And they would often uh, go to other gods, other nations' gods, and worship them. And what would happen then is God would hand them over to these other nations. These other nations would oppress them for a period of time. Israel would come to their senses, and then they would cry out to God for help. God, please rescue us. Please redeem us. And what God would do is he would raise up a military leader called a judge to free Israel and restore them back to uh, you know, being their own 
people, being in charge of themselves. And if you read the story of Judges, the book right before Ruth, there's all kinds of incredible stories. There's moral failures. There's drama. There's, I mean, there's everything exists within the book of Judges. Things I'm not even comfortable talking about uh, to you without a parental warning. Just go read it for yourself sometime. But if you wanted to sum up the story of Judges in one verse, it would be this. Judges chapter 21 verse 25. In those days, Israel had no king and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. So this is the land that Elimelech finds himself living in. It's almost this Vegas-like land where everybody does whatever they want. There's there's really no ruler, no king, nobody to pass laws. And, And when you have ultimate freedom with no rule of law in the land... People are going to do whatever they want to do. So it was an interesting time to be living. Living in the land of the judges. That was for sure a a time with less stability and less security than even you and I would be comfortable with today. And not only was the times uh, tough because of the way people were living, but the time was tough because the story tells us that a famine came upon the land. So imagine this, you have Elimelech living with his family in this Vegas-like land, trying to survive the craziness of people, but at the same time, you now have a famine that comes upon the land, and they've got no food. They don't know where to turn, craziness all around them, and no food in their bellies. The story tells us that Elimelech was in Ephrathite from Bethlehem, which isn't a major part of the story, but it's helpful to know that Ephrathites were probably one of the first uh, families to settle in that land. So he comes from wealth. Uh, To put it in our terms, this would be like the Vanderbilts suddenly becoming poor sharecroppers. So everything seems to be caving in around Elimelech and his family. And I've never lived through a famine before, but judging on how people responded when we had a shortage of toilet paper a year ago, I would just imagine that things are even more crazy than they were before. So Elimelech, like everybody else, does what is right in his own eyes. He runs away to Moab. We could say it like this, Elimelech was simply living for a better life. He's living for a better life. And and who doesn't want a better life? Everybody would like to be somewhere else. We would like to have circumstances be better and and more engaging than they are right now. And so Elimelech does what any of you and I might do in that situation. We would just want to live a better life. And and we live in a society and a culture that has totally taken this mantra over and and speaks it into our everyday life. You got a hashtag, live your best life now. The culture tells us to to chase what makes you happy and do whatever you want. Do whatever is right in your own eyes as long as you are happy. If you're unhappy, if you're dissatisfied, if you have any bit of discomfort in your life, just do something else. You don't like the church you're going to because you don't like the music or the preaching? No problem. Just do a little bit of church shopping. Go find yourself a different church. You don't like your neighborhood because you think some of the other houses are really bringing your uh, value down and, and, and you just want to be out of that neighborhood and go somewhere else? No problem. Just leave and go somewhere else. Your spouse is driving you nuts and you're having problems. You don't want to work on it. You don't want to go to counseling. No problem. Just divorce your spouse and go get another one. You want to live the best life now, just swipe your credit card and pay for it later. If you want it, if it's what makes you happy, if it seems right in your own eyes, just go do it. See, so much of our life revolves around chasing the better life. And a lot of times we do it without even realizing it because it's been ingrained in our minds that we deserve to have a happy life. 
You see, we're not so different from Elimelech. Elimelech, man, he, I think, makes a, a somewhat logical decision. Everything is caving in around him. He just wants some security, some stability. He wants a better life. So he leaves Israel and goes to Moab. But sometimes our plans for a better life and, and the way we pour ourselves into those plans doesn't work out. And we can have really good motives like providing for our family and still make dumb decisions, especially when those dumb decisions go against the law of God. If we go back in Israel's history to Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 3, we read this, No Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants for ten generations may be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. Verse 6, as long as you live, you must never promote the welfare and prosperity of the Ammonites or the Moabites. You see, in Elimelech's search for happiness, in his search to do what was right in his own eyes, to, to find stability and security for his family, he actually neglects and rejects the law of God. And God's law here was, was good. Moab was public enemy number one for Israel. They didn't offer them help years ago in their history, and they worshipped other gods, and Israel was prone to worship other gods. So this law that God gives the Israelites was actually very good for them to protect them and save them, but Elimelech has no concern for God's law. And again, I don't want to be too hard on him. I, I've been there before. I know you've been there before as well. Elimelech is looking at his situation, and he's saying, I don't see a way out. We got no food, we got no jobs, we got no money. And if you're a Dumb and Dumber fan at this point, your pet's heads are falling off. Like everything is going wrong for Elimelech and he's looking at his situation. He's like, I got to do something to provide for my family. I got to find a way out. And so what's he do? He takes matters into his own hands. He makes a decision to find a better life, but he fails to consult the law of God. And in doing so, he ends up showing that he doesn't trust his very own God. See, I wish I could tell Elimelech that he just needs to remember Israel's history. It was God who brought Israel out of Egypt and freed them from slavery. It was God who gave them the power to overthrow the other nations so that they could inherit the promised land. Time and time again, God had been faithful to the Israelite people. He had, he had freed them from oppression and, and set them free and given them this land. Time and time again, God has been faithful. And, and Elimelech should have known that that was in his family history. And he should have known that when famine comes, it usually means God is moving and he's getting ready to liberate them. But he was not not patient enough to wait on God and the, the idea of a better life overtook him. And so he takes matters into his own hands and sadly he never achieves the hashtag better life. Ruth chapter 1 verse 3, then Elimelech died and Naomi was left with her two sons. You see seldom does the better life manifest itself when that's all we chase. When our lives are simply committed to having a better life, it will consume us. It will leave us discontent because we will always, always want more. And to get the better life, to get what we think is the best life, we'll take shortcuts. We will neglect and reject the law of God and we'll end up causing suffering to other people. And now Naomi is a widow in a foreign land. And widows in that day were vulnerable and they had to be cared for. And, and thankfully for her, she still had her two sons, Malon and Kilion. But she had just faced a tragedy as she lost her husband, Elimelech. But like so many stories in real life, tragedy comes and then things start to look up again. In fact, the story of Ruth, the story of Naomi, turns into a love story. 
This is the part that we like. This is where our eyebrows go up because we're excited for the love story to take place. Ruth chapter 1 verse 4, the two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah and the other a woman named Ruth. See, she's had her hopes dashed. She's lost her husband and searched for a better life. But now she has hope once again because her sons have just taken wives. And what happens when, when a, a, a man and a woman get married? Usually offspring comes from that. And so now she's got the hope of grandchildren. And she's hoping that she can simply live for a meaningful life. No doubt this marriage is bittersweet. She's missing her husband, Elimelech, and she wishes that he would be there to to see the joyous occasion of her sons getting married, but she still is overcome with joy as she sees her sons given in marriage to these uh, two women. And then she has the hope of grandchildren. She has the joy of knowing that someday her, her family name will continue and that she'll be able to help her kids raise their kids and, and she'll be able to, to, to love them and influence them and have a life with them. I'm not a grandparent, so I don't know this from firsthand experience, but I've watched my parents with my kids and my nieces and nephews, and there just seems to be some overwhelming joy that comes with being a grandparent. In fact, I've watched as my parents have treated my kids better than they ever treated me and my siblings, which is hard for me to believe because I was a, I was a wonderful son. Just ask me about it and I'll tell you. There's something uh, infectious about being a grandparent. There's something that, that fills your heart. And maybe it's because you get to sugar them up, hyper them up, and then send them home. You get to have all the fun with, without much of the responsibility. And in fact, my mom was here this week and I knew I was preaching this message and I asked her, I said, mom, did you like being a mom or a g-maw better? And without hesitation, she looked at me and she said, oh, Gmail, for sure, it's 10 times more fun. I actually get a break. I get to have fun and then I get a break. There's something incredible about being a grandparent. And for Naomi, she's no doubt finding purpose and meaning and the hope for grandchildren and the hope for offspring from her sons. And I imagine that her imagination is just going wild. She's thinking about the meaning and the purpose that she will have in life. She's thinking about those days when her, her kids will come over and their grandkids will come and they'll sit around the table and they'll say, they'll say, Mima or Mimi, whatever she wanted to be called. They'll say, tell me about the time when you and Grandpa Elimelech went to Moab and, and the trip that that took. And, and she'll imagine the time where they crawl up into her lap and, and she gets to tell them stories and send them to bed and sugar them up and hyper them up and then send them back to her sons with Orpah and, and Ruth, their wives. She's excited for the influence that she gets to have on her grandkids. And she has found purpose and she has found meaning to live again. Even though she lost her husband, she's excited for what lays in the future with them. Her life has become less about stuff, the better life. And it's become more about purpose and the meaningful life. Last year, I read a book called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. His story is incredible. He was a prisoner of war during the Holocaust, and he found himself in several different concentration camps. He was a psychologist, and one of the things he noticed as he observed and watched other people go through the horrors of a concentration camp was that the ones who had no purpose and no meaning to live were the ones who died the quickest. 
In fact, for himself, he had been working on his life's work. He was getting ready to have it published when he was arrested and thrown in a concentration camp. His life work was taken from him. And so throughout his time in the concentration camps, he spent the rest of his time uh, writing on notes, writing on napkins, on fabrics, anything he could get his hands on to try to recreate his life's work. That was the purpose and the meaning for which he lived. Psychologists have concluded that the purpose and meaning is, is vital to our health and our well-being. When we don't have purpose, when we don't have meaning, we're, we're prone to depression and boredom and anxiety. And for those of us who struggle with addiction, the, the abuse of substances can be all that stronger as we fail to have a purpose, when we fail to have meaning in life. Humanity was made to have purpose. We were made to have meaning. And so even though her story took a downward turn at the death of her husband, it starts to come back up because I think she is now finding purpose and meaning in her life. She's got sons that she can influence and grandkids that she can love in the future, hopefully. In fact, even those that we look who have gone before us have found that contentment is found not in stuff, but in meaning. The people that we admire most maybe didn't have a lot, but they had a life of purpose and meaning, and they had all they needed. And Naomi is realizing this. But even when you have purpose and meaning, tragedy can still creep in. Ruth, chapter 4, the end of verse 4, end of verse 5. But about 10 years later, both Malon and Kilion died. And this left Naomi alone without her two sons or without her husband. Look, we don't get all the details of this story. We don't know what happens in these 10 years, but it comes to a tragic ending. She'd already lost her husband and then the hope was coming back, but then, out of nowhere, before she gets those grandkids that she was probably hoping for, Malon and Kilion died. And the irony is that the family that was trying to escape death in Israel now meets death times three. And Naomi is left as a poor widow, and there's two other widows, Orpah and Ruth, that join her. I mean, is this not the ups and downs of life? As you read Naomi's story, can you not relate to this story and know that, yeah, you've had some valleys and you've had some mountaintop experiences and that the whole of life just seems to constantly go up and down. This is what Naomi is experiencing. She was facing a bleak future in Israel, so they leave Israel in search of a better life. The better life doesn't pan out because her husband dies, and and then when he dies, the, the sons get married, and she has a little bit of future hope and purpose and meaning, but then even her purpose and her meaning is taken away from her when her sons die. When everything is taken from you, what are you supposed to do? What is Naomi supposed to do in this situation when your hope is gone? Where do you turn? At the chance of oversimplifying this, I think the easiest way to answer that question is that sometimes you just need to reset and go back home. Ruth chapter 1 verse 6, Then Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab to return to her homeland. And with her two daughters-in-law, she set out from the place where she had been living, and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. Naomi finally does what I think she should have done ten years ago. She decides that she's going to go back home to Bethlehem, back home to Judah, where God is blessing the land. 
You see, her hope for a better life, man, that's long gone when Elimelech died. And then even her hope for purpose and meaning has been stolen from her as Malon and Kilion died. And now she's simply looking at living the back-at-home life. She's just going to go back home. And in just seven verses, we've already been focusing on Naomi. We haven't even got to Ruth yet. And we've seen that Naomi's life is in shambles. Everything has been taken from her. And yeah, maybe it started with a mistake, but, but she's trying to get over those mistakes. And every turn, it just seems like something worse happens. And so she decides, I'm going home. Because if I go home, maybe I can start over. Maybe I can survive. Maybe I've got family or relatives that can take me in. Maybe I can get some food in my belly. I'm just going home to start over. As I was studying this story this week, my mind was immediately taken to the story of the prodigal son that Jesus tells in the Gospels. Real quick, the story of the prodigal son is about a a son who had a wealthy father and he didn't want to wait for his father to die until he got his inheritance. And so he says to his father, essentially, he says, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me my money now. And for some reason, the father agrees and, and the son takes his inheritance and he goes to a faraway land and he really lives it up, boozing and drinking and partying. I mean, he does all kinds of things. He blows through his inheritance and then one morning he wakes up in a pig stall. And he's looking for food and he realizes that the only food at his uh, fingertips was the leftover slop that the pigs left behind. And finally he comes to his senses and he says, did I not have a better life back at home? Did I not have food and a full stomach? And, And did I not have respect and honor living at home with my father? I need to go home and I need to beg forgiveness so that I can live again. And the prodigal son, he goes home and and the father sees him coming from the front porch and he runs to meet him with open arms and he he embraces his son and he welcomes him back home and he says, all is forgiven. Let's kill the fattened calf. Let's celebrate for you have come home. And hundreds of years before Jesus would tell that story, we see Naomi traveling in a faraway land, looking for a better life, hoping for purpose and meaning And when none of that comes to fruition, what does she do? She says, I must go back home. Back home to the land of God. Back home to where I have family and security and stability. For there is power in being home. Have you ever thought about that when someone dies that we love, we say they went home to be with Jesus? When a soldier dies overseas, we put them in a casket and we put them on an airplane and we fly them back home to bury them. Maybe you've been on vacation before and you really just want to get home. So what do you do? You drive all night to get home. Or or maybe you have to stop at a hotel which promises the comforts of home. There's something powerful about the home. And and, and scientists have found that your home life is actually tied to your well-being. I'm not sure what home means for you. Maybe it's good, maybe it's bad. I know for some of us watching that home was supposed to be a place of love and security and and nurturing, but it was the complete opposite. And it was a place of fear and hatred and, and a place that we couldn't wait to leave. But that, that's not what home was supposed to be. Home is supposed to be love. Home is supposed to be safety, security, nurturing. It's supposed to be relationships. Home is one of the most important things that we hold sacred. And this is exactly what Naomi needs at this moment. For me, home is Mooresville, Indiana. I had 10 acres of land growing up. It was a place where I could run and build forts and hang out with my buddies. I absolutely love the farmland of Mooresville, Indiana. But more important than the physical aspects was the relational aspects. 
Uh, home is where I met my high school sweetheart and, and where we later became married. Uh, home is where my dad bought me my first car. Home is where my mom sat with me when I was sick or afraid. Home is where my brothers and sister and I looked at each other with shock and awe in our faces as we thought, did mom and dad really just buy that for us for Christmas? My greatest memories are at home in Mooresville, Indiana. And I know that if anything bad ever happened in my life, if tragedy ever struck, I could always go back home. And that's where Naomi is at in this moment in her life. Tragedy struck. And so she's got to go home. Because home is where the land of God is. Home is where provision and redemption and family and security and stability is. And going back home to the land of God was the only place she could turn. And we're going to go through this story over the next four weeks, and we're going to get to know Ruth Moore, who is Naomi's daughter-in-law. But I pray as we go through this story that each and every one of us would feel the call to go back home to God. Because many of us have wandered. We've gone seeking a better life. We've gone trying to find purpose and meaning in things that were never meant to to be our purpose and meaning. And then, uh, out of nowhere, tragedy after tragedy, sorrow after sorrow has showed up at our doorstep, and we don't know where to turn. Let me give you a little bit of hope today. Your solution, if you're in that moment in life right now, is to simply go back home to Jesus. Jesus would love nothing more than to welcome you home to Him. Go back home to the God who welcomes you into his presence. Go back home to the God who promises to preserve you and make you whole and give you purpose. Go back home to the God who promises you not just a better life, but the best life for all of eternity. Go back home to the God who loved you so much that he gave up the splendors of heaven and he came here and made his home here so that he could live and he could die so that we could live. And as you go back home to him, you'll see that he can take anything and work it for good. You'll see that no matter the dark places in your life, no matter the good, the bad, or the ugly, that God is actually working in every part of your story. And as we go through this book of Ruth, Naomi is going to realize that as well. Friends, our story is Naomi's story. And it's the story of how God welcomes each of us back home. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the story of your people. And God, even when mistakes are made, we can still learn from those mistakes. And so I pray that that we would pay attention to your word and that we would pay attention to the principles from this story uh, so that we can know how to live and so that we can avoid the mistakes that, that Elimelech made. But Father, even when we make mistakes, it doesn't necessarily mean that we deserve tragedy. Sometimes tragedy and sorrow just happens in life. So God, I pray that when that happens, we would learn to look at you. And we would learn to look at ourselves and say, have I wandered? Have I gone away from home? And do I need to turn back and go back home to Jesus? And Father, I'm thankful and overwhelmed by your love that you welcome each of us home to you. And all of that is made possible by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus himself, for which we are eternally grateful. God, be with us as we go through this week. Be with us as we try to live our lives And God, may we remember that no matter what happens, we always have a place at home with you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.